God's children at work. Hopefully we'll close out 2 Thessalonians tonight. We should. No reason. It's a relatively uh, short passage. Thessalonians tonight, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter... Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Folks, let me ask you tonight, how are we to live in light of the return of Christ? How are we to live in light of the return of Christ? John Dysart, read your verse. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Okay, so what's he saying there about how we're to be living in light of Christ's return? We should have confidence in what we have given our life over to him. We've accepted him as our guide for our life each and every day. Okay, and what's the command he says that's going to help with that confidence? Abide. 
What's that mean? Continuous, steady, walk with. Walk with Christ in our relationship to Him. Right? Anything else about that? Abide in Him so you won't be ashamed when He comes. Dealing with anything in your life that's not right with the Lord and having a growing relationship with Him. Continuing. Okay? Charlie? Romans 13. And do this understanding to the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside our deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently in the daytime. Not in orgies, drunkenness, or sexual immorality. Debauchery or dissension or jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how, how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Okay. The return of Christ is closer tonight than when we got up this morning. So how are we to live in light of that? It could be any time. What's Paul say? That we're to be walking in. Walking in the light. And walking in moral purity. Right? And not living like the unbelieving world around us who's dwelling in darkness. Yes. There in Galatians 5. Yes. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. That's right. And then Jesus, when we continue to think about how we're to live in light of his return, Jesus told a parable, the parable of the talents. You remember that parable? A master was going on a journey. He called his, uh, his servants to him. Gave one of them five talents. Gave another two, another one. And the master went away. What were they to be doing before the master came back? They were to be good stewards, right? And use what they had been given uh, for the master's benefit. Use it for him. So when he returned, they would be returned. Uh, there'd be a return on his investment. And of course we know how that story ended. Uh, the one with five talents was faithful. He was given five more. The one with two was faithful. Given two more. The one with one was not a good steward. And so that was taken from him and given to the one with five and he was cast into outer darkness. So responsible stewardship. Faithfulness in what he's given us to do. Abiding in Him, walking in moral purity, being good stewards. All of those things are involved in living in light of the return of Christ. We don't know when the return of Christ will be. But regardless if it's tonight or a hundred years from now, those are things that we are to be doing to live as responsible Christians. Well, we know at Thessalonica, Paul encountered a problem. Some of the Christians there, expecting Jesus to return, maybe at any minute, were quitting their jobs, going outside of town, out on the hillside, looking up at the sky, and waiting on Christ to return. And in the meantime, because they were quitting their jobs... They were becoming a burden on their church family. 
to try to support their needs. It was irresponsible living they were engaged in. It wasn't the way that Christians are supposed to wait on the return of the Lord. They were living irresponsibly, and it was a terrible testimony for the Christians there at Thessalonica. How do you think the unbelievers at Thessalonica responded to seeing that, that these Christians were quitting their jobs and becoming a burden on their community? It wasn't a good testimony, was it? You know, the world loves to attack Christians. I remember about 10 years ago, now she shouldn't have done what she did, there was a lady pastor in St. Louis uh, she got a restaurant bill, and it was for $34. And there was space there. Uh, they were asking for an 18% tip. And she wrote down, I give God 10%. Why should I give you more? And she actually wrote down a zero tip and gave the total what it should be, you know, before a tip or anything. And the Applebee's worker, you remember, posted it online. And because she violated the privacy of a customer, a restaurant fired her. But also, you can imagine on social media how people responded to this lady pastor who didn't do something right. I mean, she was wrong by not tipping a worker at all and writing a note like that. And, and so, you know, there were calls for her, for her church and all, to deal with her and fire her. But, but the point is, uh, the world's watching Christians, loves to, loves to uh, look for any occasion to criticize Christians, right? Actually, by the way, I've read a study, too, that shows Christians are, are actually good tippers compared to the rest of the society. But this lady pastor wasn't a good witness. The world jumped on her. Folks, when we don't conduct our business well, when we don't conduct our lives well, it is a poor testimony. I remember the comment of a man one time, a Christian man who said he buys everything on credit. You know what? You know what his reason was? Buys everything on credit, so if Christ comes back, somebody else will have to pay this bill. <laughs> but that, again, it's not a good way to be. It, it's attitudes like this, or similar to this in some ways, that Paul is addressing at Thessalonica. He wanted believers to be a good witness. And he didn't want believers being an undue burden on the rest of the believing community. And so in these verses, Paul addresses the Christian work ethic and how to handle the unproductive. First of all tonight, I want you to see admonishment of how to treat the unproductive. Admonishment of how to treat the unproductive. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us. Now it may surprise us to hear Paul saying here, keep away from, stay away. I mean, 
That's a pretty strong challenge, isn't it? Stay away from any brother you know in the church who's not living a responsible life. Now, I am going to assume here that this unproductive person that Paul's speaking of uh, is somebody who's probably been warned. Probably been repeatedly warned. Has continued to go down this path. Uh, they've continued to be idle. And all the while, they're expecting the church to take care of them. Now, while the Bible is very clear that we're to take care of those who can't care for themselves, it's a totally different story if the church is being continually called upon to take care of somebody who won't help themselves. It's similar to what Paul said in 1 Timothy about the church's relationship to widows, 1 Timothy chapter 5, that the church is to take care of widows who don't have any family if such widow has a need. But then Paul goes on to say, but if there's a believing widow in your midst and she does have family, let her family take care of her if they're able. Let them take care of her so the church will be freed up to care for those that don't have anybody in their family. And then Paul said, to fail to take care of your family members is worse than being an infidel, an unbeliever. Right? Uh, I remember, uh, and I've told the Taylor Glenn group this uh, story before. There was a a couple, a young couple in our church here, quite a number of years ago. You, you won't remember them, and they weren't here very long because they came to our church, and uh, he lost his job pretty quickly. And not because of anything that he did wrong, but it's simply the company was doing layoffs. I think it's back down, back down during the 2008 slump. And he lost his job pretty quickly because he was the last one in, so the first one to go. And I'd met with this couple, and uh, by their own admission, by the young lady's own admission, uh, she came from a family uh, that was very wealthy. I mean, they didn't make that any secret that she, she grew up in a very wealthy home. Well, when he lost his job and they were out of work, her mom emailed me, what was Pitts going to do to take care of her daughter and son-in-law? And, and I communicated with her. I said, I appreciate you bringing this to our attention. And Pitts has an outstanding reputation for taking care of its own, which you do. And in a nice way, I don't remember now how I set the table anyway, but I went through 1 Timothy 5 and basically asked her, um, I said, you know, your daughter tells me you and your husband are very wealthy. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I guess, that, I guess we'd have to say that. I said, well, according to 1 Timothy 5, I guess as the pastor of Pitts, I'd like to hear what y'all are going to do um, so we can decide then what we need to do. And she said, what, what passage are you talking about? She was a dedicated Christian, supposedly. And she read the passage, and, and 
to her credit, and, and I mean this sincerely, to her credit, she said, wow, pastor, she said, I, I appreciate you calling my attention to that. She said, my husband and I can take care of them. Uh, we're more than able to do that. And she said, I didn't, I didn't know about that passage. And uh, we, we need to just, my husband and I need to do, do what we need to do as a family. I'm sorry that I've bothered you. And if, if I need something else, I will call you. And she was sincerely thankful. She wasn't mad that I brought her attention to that. She just never heard it before. Uh, that was a great witness on her part. Uh, but again, when family has the ability to take care of family, don't become a burden on the church. So the church can take care of those who, who don't have anybody to step in and help them out. Uh, when we think about this whole subject matter, I think it says something about the work ethic and the responsibility that we are to have as believers. And as far as the work ethic, as Paul's saying about this brother here, this being idle, uh, we need to remember when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to work. They were to tend the garden. It was a good thing. Uh, God commanded Israel to work six days and rest the seventh. You read all the commands in the book of, of Proverbs, commands and principles in Proverbs about laying up for the future. And we're told to go and observe the animal world, like the ants, for instance, how they store up, uh, store up their food for winter months. And they're given as an example of how mankind is to be. Also, there's biblical commands to minister to the poor, to share with those in need, uh, to work, be responsible, uh, working, so that you are able to help people in need. All of these commands assume what? That we will be responsible in this area. We can even broaden it out a little bit and talk about working related to spiritual gifts in the church, right? We're told that everybody has at least one spiritual gift, every Christian. One's a mouth, one's a nose, one's an eye, one's an ear, one's a hand, one's a foot. We're all part, different parts of the body. And everybody is to do their part so the church body can be a complete body. If people are being idle in that regard and not serving with their spiritual gift and building up the church body by serving, then they're being idle in that regard, in the spiritual sense of not working. They're becoming an undue burden because somebody else in the church, maybe somebody who doesn't have that gift, is having to step in when that person should have done it all along. The point in all of this is that work and service are good. And it's one of the areas that is included in the fact when the Bible says we are created in the image of God. God worked. God created six days, worked the seventh. He was productive and creative. We're to be that way, created in his image. That's part of what's involved in being in his image. Then Paul wants to point out that he's not writing from an ivory tower. He points out his example. He said, for you yourselves know, verse 7, how you ought to imitate us because 
We were not idle when we were with you. He was a good example to the Thessalonians. Folks, what kind of example is a father to his son in the world today? If there's a father who can work but won't work, and his family's always in need, what, what kind of testimony is he to his children? Not a good one. Well, Paul was their spiritual father. And he set a good example for them. So he's commending them to follow his example in this regard. Uh, secondly, I want you to see what he says about the danger of idleness. The danger of idleness. <clears throat> he, said, he goes on in the chapter, say, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. <clears throat> you know, all. Oftentimes we used to hear, I guess you heard it more out of old timers that used to say, idle, uh, idle hands are what? The devil's, the devil's workshop. There's truth in that, isn't there? You have people sitting around all day doing nothing productive and many of them will find a way to get into mischief. If we're sitting around all the time not doing anything, then pretty soon we might be sitting around talking about people being nothing more than busybodies. And you know, I can honestly say that in church life, most of the complaints come from people who are serving nowhere. That's kind of a common thing pastors will talk about. Those, those in any church family who are rolling up their sleeves and working and serving, it's not those people complaining because they know how much time and effort goes into everything, because they're a part of it themselves. It's people sitting around doing nothing, thinking everybody's supposed to take care of them and serve them. You know, this, what about me mentality? What have you done for me today? It's those people sitting around that get to doing this, right? Complaining about everybody else in the church that they perceive not doing enough for them. <clears throat> and become busybodies, then the focus is on us instead of on the Lord and on other people. But Jesus said we're to serve others. In fact, he said, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Be a servant. Be willing to be the last of all and the least. Servants are very forgiving of other servants. Busybodies, on the other hand, are merciful to no one. And they tend to be forgiving of no one. Everybody else hold, is held to a high standard while they don't lift their fingers to do anything. You ever known people like that? You probably have. Notice what Paul says. This is my paraphrase, what Paul says there in verse 12. Shut up and get to work. <laughs> and he follows that up by saying, those who don't listen to us what are they to do? Stay away from them. But then he adds a gentle touch, doesn't he? A gentle touch there that's the goal of discipline. He says stay away from them. But what's he say in verse 15? Don't treat them like an enemy, but like a brother. What he's talking about, some people would call tough love. Deal with people. Deal with their sin or their wrongdoing, but deal with them as a brother. 
You know, when you think about church discipline in general, it's to be redemptive. It's not simply punitive. It's to be redemptive. We have firm guidelines, but there needs to be a way out of the discipline for the person who's been in the wrong. There needs to be steps towards restoration. Right? And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, be firm with these people. Stay away from them, but, you know, treat them as a brother. Your, your ultimate goal is seeing them restored and becoming productive. Now, all of this, I realize, flies in the face of people who say, oh, but we're not supposed to judge. Uh, usually, it's somebody in the wrong who just doesn't want to have any accountability. Uh, what Jesus was talking about when he said not to judge was not judging from an ivory tower uh, by somebody who may be doing the same thing. You know, they're trying to pull a speck out of somebody else's eye and they've got a, a beam hanging out of their own. But you know, the New Testament assumes really that we will be accountable to one another. Jesus said you will know them by their what? fruit. That kind of implies you've got to make some kind of judgment, right? If you're going to know somebody by their fruits, you're sort of, you've got to make a judgment call. In 1 Corinthians 5, they were commanded to judge an immoral brother who was sleeping with his stepmother. That his, his dad, it was his dad's wife and he was sleeping with her too. In this case, his, his stepmother. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, you know, this is sin that you don't even hear about in the world. You should have put this brother out. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you come to the Lord's table, judge yourself. The reason some of you are sick and some of you are even dying is because the way you're coming to the Lord's table, you're not judging yourselves first. And because you're not judging yourselves first, God's judging you. You won't fall under your own judgment or God's judgment. You better fall under your own judgment and get whatever's wrong in your life straight, right? But again, we're to judge ourselves. 1 John 4 tells us that we are to judge the spirits to see if they are from God because many antichrists have gone into the world. Think about this also. If we were to, never to judge, I suppose you could even say no parent could ever discipline their child. Because for a parent to discipline their child, what do they have to do? Judge that their child has done wrong, something worthy of, of uh, discipline. So those who just simply say, oh, but we're not supposed to judge. Like Paul is saying about this brother here, we're not supposed to do it. Yes, we are. We're just supposed to do it in the proper way, a biblical way. Not out of superiority or pride and not with a spirit of hypocrisy, but we are the judge. And the goal of the judgment in this case with somebody being idle, again, is redemptive. And then Paul closes with a prayer for peace. He says... Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Folks, God's desire is that his children 
be at peace. We're to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. And we're to be at peace with one another through brotherly love and forgiveness. And we're to be at peace corporately through conducting all of our affairs in a godly way. God's people are to be at peace. You think of this hurricane coming in and think about it using just an analogy of this. The storm coming in. You know the world today is in a storm, right? At odds with one another. The world is a storm. Not just that, at, you know, having storms with one another. The world is a very storm, you could say. But the lost ought to be able to walk into a fellowship of believers and find an oasis of peace. Right? And that's, that's how Paul is telling them they need to be. And they need to be responsible so they can be that type of fellowship. Now, as we think again about some of the reasons Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and just read over those things I've given you, we see that he wanted them to be holy and pure in the midst of a crooked and perverse culture. He pointed that out in 1st Thessalonians. Also in 1st Thessalonians, he wanted them to respect their spiritual leaders for the sake of the work they do. Then in 1 Thessalonians 4, he wanted them to be confident about their loved ones who had died in the Lord. He assured them that their, their deceased loved ones who died in Christ would not miss anything. In fact, they would have a front and center stage seat during all the end time events. They would be raised first. Then as he went into 2 Thessalonians, he wanted them to understand signs of the times and things that must happen before Christ comes back. He wanted them to be assured that Jesus had not already returned and left some of them behind. In chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, he wanted them to know that there are many enemies of the gospel and so prayer and preaching need to go together to overcome the strategies of the devil. And then here in chapter 3, he also wants them to be productive citizens while they wait on Jesus' return. Folks, when you think about all those principles right there, I think overall, you can't get any better than that message right there he's, he's given this congregation. As we wait, as we wait, as we're anticipating Jesus to split the sky and come for his bride, these, these seven principles that I've closed with here, that he covers in these two letters, you can't get much better than that right there, what he's telling you to do, to be. God wants us to be ready. Because he is coming. And like John said in 1 John 2.28, be ready so that when he comes, 
we won't be ashamed. We'll close there. Any comments you have? First and Second Thessalonians are rich little epistles. Only what? Eight chapters between the two of them. century secretaries that you, you dictate your letters to were called what? Do you remember? Amanuensis. Amanuensis. And Paul would use a variety of those. But when he really wanted to emphasize a point like to the Galatians or right here to the Thessalonians, what's he point out? <laughs> you see that I, I've written this to you. And he told the Galatians that by the style too, see which what large letters, you, you, this is me, this is my style. And of course some have tried to say Paul's thorn in the flesh must have been bad eyesight, which could have been the case. In fact, I tend to think that probably was his thorn in the flesh. We don't know. But many think that's what it was. And that he... When he wrote, because his eyesight was so poor, the letters were big, so he could see what he was writing. But anyway, he tells the Galatians, whatever it was about his style, you know, see, you, you know this is me writing to you, and not, not my amanuensis, or, you know, this isn't, this isn't somebody else here. This is me, and same, same thing here. So there's something about his handwriting that was a dead giveaway. But I also think that he was pretty upset with, with in, the, in the second letter, he was pretty upset with the way they were behaving for him to take that much interest to physically write the letter himself. Yes. Um, first, that's funny, is right now, that, that's the, I've told you once. Yeah. You know, second letter is, all right, now we got to get the business. Yep. You know, and, and he's making that personal saying, hey, look, I'm noticing this. People aren't telling me like he did in, in uh, the first one where he said, I've heard. Yeah. He's actually seen this. And, and he's probably a little more upset right in 2 Thessalonians because of the way the letter started, if you remember that. Uh, it's the context of there's a false teacher or teachers who kind of lead them astray. Right. And, the false, the and the false teacher or teachers have his dander up. Right. And I love the directness that he did in Second Thessalonians because that is a mark of a true pastor is to be stern in what you're seeing as disruptive, yes. but yet be that gentle too. Right. Be that, that empathetic uh, spirit that, that is saying, okay, look, I'm like a good dad would. Yeah. I'm stern, but I'm going to be compassionate at the same time. I'll forgive you, but you got it straight up. Yeah. Like you said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm like a gentle mother on one hand, nurturing you, and I'm also like a father admonishing you. But I'm not 
He, he said his ministry was but it had both of those characteristics. First Thessalonians, when your father gets home, second Thessalonians, now dad's home. Yeah. could have been from that. Uh, some also believe that his first missionary journey, the areas he went to around Pamphylia and Iconium and all that region, was an area known for malaria. And one of the side effects of malaria can be affecting the eyesight. And so could have been his conversion when he was blinded. It could have been he got malaria. And with malaria, that's why it comes and goes, waxes and wanes. People who have it say, you go through some rough periods and get better, and rough periods and get better. I, again, we're not told. We're not told. I, you know, I think there's at least some good speculative evidence that probably was his eyesight. of the word, but also the sufficiency of the word. Yeah. Yeah. So some people who say they believe in the inerrancy of the word that it's without error will then turn around and act like they don't think it's sufficient. Exactly. But it is. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was good. Yeah. <coughs> Things that you've uh, said, we as Christians are responsible for what we believe. And in these verses, it's talking about abide and not be ashamed. We don't know when he's coming. He doesn't even know when he's coming. But on top of that, we're praying for K through college. And I heard two young men in this church give an unbelievable testimony as they preached. You gave them the ability to preach God's word. And they knew their mission right off. 
our mission not only is to take care of ourselves, but each one of us have the God-given testimony that we're to tell others why we are and why we believe. And that's being prepared each and every day. And things that you and I have talked about, when you look at what's happening in the world, in the Methodist church, what's happening in the Catholic church, and all these things combined, we as Christians get a bad rap because of even go beyond a comment that made a couple of times and somebody gets disgruntled with what might have been said and hurt their feelings or I don't want to go back to church. You know, we should always know what comes out of the mouth, you know, and be mindful of that. Somebody's always watching or somebody's always hearing what you say. Yeah. Yeah. Amen.